Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Erica Armstrong Dunbar, author of She Came to Slay. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, author of She Came to Slay, The Life and Times of Harriet Tubman. Where'd you come up with that title, She Came to Slay? Yeah, the title, um, I think the title demonstrates what I was trying to do with the book, and that is to have a a biography, a rendering of Tubman that was more modern, that was sort of a, a fresh take on her. Um, and as I was sort of working on the project, uh, I kept thinking about how I would make this relatable to younger readers, to actually to readers of all ages. But I wanted to, to refashion her, to bring her into sort of the present. And, you know, I think many of us who are familiar with pop culture and music, um, it's, a, it's a sort of, a, it's a reference to Beyonce and Beyonce's Lemonade and kind of this idea of um, that there's a power in women, in women's bodies, in women's minds that simply needs to be unleashed. And in many ways, I think that's a reference to, to who Harriet Tubman was. Every time she traveled the Underground Railroad, freeing people, moving them out of enslavement. Every time she did that, she came to slay. And so it seemed like a sort of appropriate title to let readers know that this is gonna be a biography about Tubman, but also something that was slightly different. Did, did you know pretty much everything about her before you started this? Yeah, you know, I've, I, I have the great fortune of being a professor and, and teaching um, African-American women's history in the 19th century. So I teach Tubman. Um, and um, I taught her, but I wasn't necessarily planning on writing about her, writing a book about her. And so um, my editor and publisher she approached me and we knew that um, the film, the biopic Harriet, would be released at the end of 2019. And we thought, you know, this might be a really good moment to produce something, to publish something that would land right around the same time as the film and that it would allow those who go to see the film to say, who have questions, well, tell us more. I want to know more about Harriet Tubman. Well. Uh, they would have something else um, to look to. So I, I knew quite a bit about her, but I hadn't necessarily planned on writing about her. And one of the reasons that um, my editor suggested, maybe you want to think about this, is I had just finished writing a book about another fugitive woman, a different time period, but it sort of seemed like an appropriate, appropriate move for me. So for people who might only know her by the name, what are, what are the headlines about Harriet Tubman? Oh, you know, I, I think one of the things I wanted to do with this book is to remind people that although they think they know Harriet Tubman, they probably don't. They probably know what was presented to them in their high school history textbook, right? And so when we think about that introduction to Tubman, we usually 
see the sort of image of her as an older woman, um, head covered, hands clasped, um, elderly. And this is the sort of um, image that most Americans, if they know Tubman, you know, sort of conjure up in their mind. It's from their history textbooks. And um, they know that she was uh, an underground railroad conductor. And probably that's it, right? And, and so one of the things that I wanted to do was to be able to highlight these other moments, these other sort of important things about her life as a public person, but also as an individual. So, okay, we know Tubman rescued many people, drew them out of the vice grip of slavery. But she was also a woman who was married. She was a mother. She had a family that she loved deeply. She really sort of went around New England and talked about anti-slavery. So she was an anti-slavery activist. Um, later on, she would go on to become the first woman to really be in charge of a military expedition in the Civil War. She went on to be involved in suffrage, the women's fight for, for the right to vote. So Tubman is much more than we actually sort of uh, render her down to in history textbooks, and that's what I wanted to do with, with She Came to Slay. She was born Minty Ross? She was. She was born, um, of course, we don't have a birth certificate for her or most of all of the enslaved. We know she was born sometime around 1822 um, in Maryland. She lived on the eastern shore of Maryland. She was um, the daughter of two people who were deeply in love with one another. Uh, Harriet Green and Ben Ross, and they had a family together, and Harriet uh, was one of their children, but named Araminta Ross. Um, her nickname was Minty. And so one of the things that's interesting, uh, thinking about her childhood, it reminds us that, that we have to see Tubman through different lenses. We have to see her as a child. We need to see her as a teenager, what we would call a teenager now a young adult and then an older person. And as a child, she lived a very difficult life. I mean, slavery was difficult, but to be a, a child enslaved and um, to really be forced to deal with some of uh, the violence of slavery on your own uh, was something that we know about Minty's story. Around the age of five, she was um, taken from her mother. Her parents actually were forced to live on different farms, about 10 miles from each other. And at the age of five, Minty was um, hired out to work on a different farm. So, you know, we as a sort of modern reader think, okay, that's a child who is kindergarten aged, probably without her adult teeth yet, right? What would a five-year-old slave's job have been? Yeah, well, it really differed uh, depending upon where you were located, where, uh, what your responsibilities were. So for someone like um, Araminta, she was on the eastern shore of Maryland at that time. She was required to empty the muskrat traps of her new owner. And that meant um, prying open these traps. Sort of think about a five-year-old's hand, right? opening up a trap and attempting to remove a, 
what was probably a dead rodent in order to bring it back so that the pelts could be used and what have you. And in very kind of difficult weather, whether it was super hot or, or cold. Um, she was also required to do domestic work. She was expected to clean and, um, and to cook. And these were things that most five-year-olds didn't know how to do. Minty did not know how to do this prior to her arrival. And because of that, she was beaten. And so there is, you know, once again, the violence of slavery playing out on the bodies of children on Araminta. And she was also responsible for taking care of babies. So it, it's really sort of a, a baby taking care of another baby. She later on sort of told her story uh, later on in her life, and she described this moment of having to care for a baby. She's five, six years old. And she's so small that she's got to sit down on the floor in order to hold the baby. And that at night, she was responsible for making certain that the baby didn't wake and cry, wake up uh, the mother. And of course, as most five-year-olds would, she would fall asleep herself and would be unable to get to the baby or allow the baby to stop crying. And she would be punished, she'd be whipped. Her, uh, she was, uh, the baby's mother was kept, uh, slept in a bed with a, a whip under her pillow. And so every time the baby cried, she would reach under her pillow and whip Araminta about her head and, and her neck. And so this is the introduction into slave labor for Araminta. She was, uh, she was enslaved from the moment she was born. We know that the laws said that. Your status followed the status of your mother. Her mother was enslaved, therefore she was born enslaved. But her actual duties, her work um, outside of anything she would do for her mother or family began at the age of five, six years old. Where do you find the, the stories of her early life? And are there any records kept anywhere or is it like her recollections? Yeah, well, we have, um, we have her recollections, as I said, that were written later on in her life. Um, in the 1860s, so she was in her 40s, going, approaching 50s when her... Um, I don't really want to call it an autobiography because there is a little bit of discrepancy about uh, what was written about her that was supposedly from her mouth. Uh, but we do know that that's the closest thing we have to her narrative. Uh, but we also have planter records. We have the records of uh, those who owned her. Uh, we have um, um, other markers. And, you know, this is the great thing about what historians get to do. We get to be detectives um, and to spend some time in archives digging around looking at slave census records, um, records that allow historians to be able to attach Araminta to her parents, to know who they were, to know who her mother's mother was. Um, and for me, that's important. I actually begin She Came to Slay not with with Harriet's story, but I actually begin the story with her grandmother. And I do that in part because her grandmother had been um, kidnapped from Africa. So she is the sort of direct reminder of Harriet's connection to the transatlantic slave trade. And that her 
grandmother, who was renamed Modesty, um, arrived on the eastern shore of Maryland and at some point gave birth to Araminta's mother and Araminta's mother Harriet would have her. And so I really wanted readers to understand that Harriet Tubman isn't sort of dropped on us, um, a fully formed human being, you know, fighting slaveholders uh, on the Underground Railroad uh, in the 1850s, that she is, um, that her history is deep and her lineage is deep. Um, and that's one of the things I tried to, to show in the book. How did Harriet uh, Minty Ross become Harriet Tubman? Yeah, you know, there's actually a little bit of, um, uh, there's some discrepancies. Historians actually think differently about this. What we all know, though, is that um, she made the decision to change her name. More than likely, um, she started to call herself Tubman, take her last name Tubman, when she married. Um, and she married a man named John Tubman, uh, who was free, a free black man. And um, sometime around 1844, they marry. So more than likely, she took that name, even though we have to remember their marriage was not a legal marriage. No enslaved people um, had legal marriages. They could be interrupted and um, torn apart from one another, uh, depending upon the, the wishes of a slaveholder. So more than likely, she at least started calling herself um, Mrs. Tubman at that moment in 1844. The question about when she decides to call herself Harriet is um, still sort of up for grabs. And we see um, different understandings. We see something in the film that came out in 2019, some of the other important biographies about Tubman. Um, I really believe that she started to call herself Harriet Tubman prior to her escape. And we know that she takes the name Harriet as a sort of um, sign of respect and love for her mother, whose name was Harriet, right? Uh, and it could be that right at the moment, right before she escaped, she started to use that name, or she used it as soon as she got to Philadelphia. Um, we're actually not quite certain. How did that work where a, a, a slave would marry a free person? And could they live together, or how, how did that work? Yeah, it seems. Um, you know, when we, what we think of slavery, we, we, we wonder, okay, how, how was there a free black man on the eastern shore of Maryland in the 1840s? Um, but in reality, when we think about places like Maryland and Delaware moving closer to Pennsylvania, there was the population of enslaved people um, was somewhat shrinking. There was actually a significant population of free black people in Dorchester County, Maryland. And so it actually wasn't odd that um, she married a free man. However, I think it's important to note that John Tubman making the decision to marry an enslaved woman, um, he would have known that that was not just a risk, but that any children that they would have together would follow suit with their mother's status. So any child they had would be enslaved. Did they have any children? They didn't. They did not. Uh, we could probably spend the whole time with me just tossing out stories and you telling them, but one of the I, I want to ask about, she had an accident where she broke her skull? Yeah. Um, 
it's one of the sort of, I think, central moments in her life, especially as a young person. Um, and also another reminder of kind of the violence of slavery. She's um, a teenager uh, in the 1830s sometime. We're not exactly certain of the date. But there was, a, she was on her way to the general store to um, pick up a few items. It was supposed to be a sort of simple trip. And on her way to the store, she kind of intersected um, with a kind of event that was happening. There was a, a young uh, enslaved man who was attempting, we don't know if he was attempting to run away uh, for good permanently or if he was running away from a um, overseer, but he was running. He was trying to kind of get out of Dodge. And the overseer was in sort of fast pursuit and everybody's sort of paths cross at the general store. And the overseer sees Harriet Tubman, or at that point, Araminta. And he mandates her to help subdue this man, help take him down so that he could capture him. And it's in this sort of quick moment, this young teenage young woman makes a decision that she's not going to help the overseer. And she basically says, no. And in that moment, the young man was able to escape. He ran off. And the overseer was, was furious. And so he picks up a, a two-pound weight that was on the counter. Weights were used to balance scales, to weigh goods. Um, and he picked up this weight, and he hurled it in the direction, we believe, of the runaway. But it actually collided with Araminta. It hit her in her skull, fractured her skull. And she was unconscious, rendered unconscious. Um, she later reported that she was taken back to, to where she lived. She didn't have a bed even to lay on. Um, they put her on the, the seat of a loom because she was um, supposed to also do some weaving. And she reports later on that you know, she was bleeding profusely and unconscious. And shortly thereafter, she was expected to be back in the fields doing agricultural work. And this moment is important in Harriet Tubman's life because two things happen. One, this sort of injury um, really sort of became a medical condition she would live with for the rest of her life. We don't often think about Harriet Tubman as someone who lived with a disability. But she did. She would suffer from constant headaches the entirety of her life. Uh, and she would have what she called spells, um, which probably today we'd call seizures, where she was basically in an unconscious state. She would um, be unable to talk or communicate, and you supposedly couldn't rouse her. You had to let her sort of come out of this moment. And it was during these moments she would awaken and she would have had visions. And she always claimed that it was God's way of speaking to her. And it's a moment where we see Harriet Tubman deeply connected to her faith, to her belief in God, that God would give her visions or tell her information that would allow her to make decisions about her life and about the lives of others. And so it, we have all at once this moment where she's disabled and living with seizures and um, terrible headaches, 
uh, but also a moment where she becomes closer with her God. You, you write here that as her health improved, she began to work on the timber gang, chopping wood and hauling heavy loads to nearby wagons, all to the delight of her white owners. So she was not a genteel uh, work around the house. No, well, type. you know, she, she did that when she was a child. She did that kind of domestic labor that many enslaved women and children did. But um, she kind of sort of appeared more suited for agricultural work, and she actually preferred it. And there are multiple reasons for wanting to, say, in, in a place like Maryland where you're harvesting flax, right, uh, or working on the timber gang. You are outside, and you're not sort of trapped in the confines of a home where an owner could take out their anger or um, uh, sort of moments of inconvenience out on you, the breaking of a dish or uh, bad weather or things that could irritate or frustrate. If you're not in close proximity, washing floors or cooking dinner or holding the baby, a crying colicky baby, then you're, perhaps you have a little bit of space to negotiate your own life, your own surroundings. And that's one of the things that we see happen with Tubman when she's sort of working out in, in the field. She's, it's backbreaking labor. And of course she didn't know it, but at the time she was really sort of preparing her body for what would be the fight of her life, right? And that was eventually to escape and eventually to help others. So this was, that's the other thing we have to remember about Araminta, about Harriet. She was a small woman in stature, right? She's five feet tall. Um, and that's even small for sort of early, mid 19th century standards. Um, but we know from reports that she was doing as much work as some of the men. Uh, who are out there in the fields with her. And so, you know, with each, each time she lifts these kind of heavy bags onto wagons, she's like building a muscular frame. She's also learns, while she's out kind of in the wilderness quite a bit, she learns um, how to use kind of specific herbs and natural remedies. And this was important in the 19th century because as she knew, you weren't really introduced to any kind of medical attention if you were enslaved. So for her um, to be able to uh, know what leaves to brew for a tea to help with digestive issues, would have been extremely important in the 19th century. So although this work was terribly difficult and arduous, there were some advantageous um, components of that work that later on she would draw from um, when she became involved in the underground. When did she start thinking about running away? You know, most people would answer that question with, um, 1849, around that time when she, she does. But I, I don't think that. I think that, um, to be honest, most enslaved people thought about running away from the moment they realized they were enslaved. Um, and we know that as a young girl, 
Araminta actually ran away from her home. She, it wasn't necessarily a plan, it wasn't planned to be over a long period of time. Many enslaved people ran away and then returned to the farm to kind of deal with whatever punishment that would come their way. And we, we usually, historians call it sort of a form of truancy as, a poor, as opposed to um, escape. And we know that as a child, the situation became so bad for, for Araminta that she did just that. She ran away. And she recalled later on that she um, hid out with um, the pigs and that she was, then this is a farm, right? And she's fighting for uh, food slops from, with what the pigs had been given. And um, she knew that she was going to return. Eventually the hunger, the thirst um, would draw her back uh, to this home where she was uh, laboring. So I, I really think that she always thought about escape and did it. However, when we think about a sort of permanent, um, a permanent escape. How old was she? She, well, her, when, when, when she, her, her permanent escape. Her, oh, her permanent escape happens in 1849. So she's in her late 20s by this time. Um, and she learns or she hears, there are a couple of things that happen that are very kind of, typical for the lives of enslaved people, her owner dies. And he dies, uh, he was not a, a well-liked man by Harriet Tubman or her family. Um, and she had actually, he was kind of so brutal and vicious, um, she had actually prayed that he would die. And her prayers were answered. Um, and when they were answered, you know, that's the moment where as an enslaved person you recognize my whole life could be turned upside down because of the death of my owner. And, and why is that? Because he died with significant debt. And this has happened with many famous slaveholders. Thomas Jefferson, for example, there was one of the largest slave sales um, after his death, debt, his death in order to take care of his debt. Um, we see this with, uh, with Harriet Tubman. And so she sort of knows that um, there's, there are rumors and talk that um, the widow of her owner was going to um, sell off enslaved people. And because Harriet Tubman actually really wrestled with poor health every now and then, she sort of thought she would be at the top of that list of someone who might be sold off, including um, two of her brothers. And so really around sometime in 1849, between the spring and summer of 1849, um, she's beginning to think seriously about what it would mean to stay uh, and risk being sold further south into what had become kind of what we know as the Cotton South, right? Her three sisters had experienced that same fate. She never saw them again. So she knew that this window of any opportunity was closing for her. And so she makes this decision um, in the fall of 1849 to flee. And she ran away with two brothers? Yeah, and you know, that's the one thing most people don't know. Like, you think you know Tubman. Do you really know, you know, about her escape? She, her first attempt at a sort of permanent escape 
was with her two brothers, Ben and Henry. And um, they leave sometime in September, early October, later in September. Um, and they take to the woods, right? They start heading north. And, you know, whenever I'm teaching to my students, my uh, college students, I say, okay, what does it mean to try and run away, to try and find your way to, say, Philadelphia from Maryland um, in the middle of the 19th century when you are illiterate, which means you can't read signs, if there were, or a map, right? You don't have a compass. You've never left your community, so you don't really know where you're going. Um, how do you make that happen, right? And in many, you know, for, for what my students respond is, well, I don't, I don't know. You know, there's no phone with a GPS that you can pull out, right? And so um, the fear that comes with the unknown eventually um, took hold of Araminta's brothers. And her brothers made the decision that it would be wiser to return and to face what would be sort of certain punishment, and perhaps even sail, than to keep moving forward in a way um, into the unknown. And so they literally almost drag Harriet Tubman back. She had made, she was ready to go. She, all of them had left behind loved ones. She left behind her husband and her parents and siblings. Uh, her brothers had left behind loved ones as well. But um, she really had no intention of returning. Her brothers forced her to. And so it's probably at this moment that Tubman makes the decision that she's never going to let a man run her life that way again. And so her brother's fear forced them to return, legitimate fears, right? Um, and it's shortly after that, her return, that she takes off on her own. Where does she go? Yeah, you know, it's um, one of the reasons I love being a, a historian of Philadelphia and, and Pennsylvania is because all the good things always end up happening uh, here. And so, you know, Tubman understands that really the first state, free, completely free state, that she needs to sort of get to in 1849 would be Pennsylvania. And so she never leaves behind information about her, all of the informants that help her along the way. She gives us clues and ideas, and sometimes she'll name um, some of the more famous abolitionists who were involved in her, um, helped her with her escape. How, how did she know the route? That's, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, for there are a couple things at play here. Harriet spent a significant amount of time outside, right? And so in many ways she's become um, aware and uh, knows the patterns of water, um, the sort of old known uh, folklore of, you know, follow the North Star uh, or the drinking gourd, the kind of constellation of stars. And these were things that were in play in um, Harriet's experience. And she also was told in what direction to go, where the safe houses were that she could stop for clothing or food um, while she was on the run. And so she makes her way to Delaware and eventually to Pennsylvania. Her location in Maryland, in some ways, 
meant that she had a hundred mile or so journey to make. And, you know, I often sort of ask my students to think about what it means to travel a hundred miles almost on foot. What does that, what kind of shoes would she have needed or had or didn't have, right, to make this journey? Um, and also, her proximity on the Eastern Shore of Maryland made it a possibility so that if you were, say, in Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi, or you were in Mobile, Alabama, you are much further away from what was considered the free north, right? And so being in Maryland made it a possibility, not, not easy by any stretch of the imagination, but that she could eventually make it to Pennsylvania and would really sort of set up shop in Philadelphia and be connected to kind of the major players here. So she made it to Philadelphia, walks into Philadelphia. She's a runaway slave in Philadelphia. What does she do next? I mean, how does she connect with people and mm -hmm. set up shop? What, what does she do? She, you know, she did what many other fugitives did. Um, and there are sort of a couple of things that have to happen immediately. One, you want to remain undetected, right? So you don't want anybody to pay any attention to you. That's your... Uh, that's your job, right, in order to stay free. But before, you know, I think it's important we talk about how she um, lives her life, but her, her sort of first thought when she crosses the Pennsylvania line was that we would imagine it would be this feeling of kind of hilarious um, happiness. But she actually says later on in her life that it wasn't, that... The moment she stepped into the free soil of Pennsylvania, that she knew that her freedom, and I use air quotes because she's a fugitive, she's not really free, she's living as a free person, uh, but her experience living as a free person was simply not enough because all of her loved ones were enslaved. You know, what did her freedom mean without them in her life? And so she, she makes the decision almost immediately to return for them, um, which is, you know, kind of when we think about the narrative of Tubman and her escape and, you know, what, what must she have thought immediately, she actually thought about her family. And so it reminds us that freedom and slavery were sort of sitting side by side, right? You couldn't really have one without the other. And she recognizes that her freedom is incomplete without her family. So she immediately begins to think about how she's going to go back and get them. And the first thing she needed to do was kind of set herself up to find employment. That becomes one of the first tasks for any fugitive. What is it that she would be able to do to still remain undetected? In Philadelphia in the 1840s and 50s, um, you know, there were many fugitives kind of moving through the Philadelphia corridor um, up into New York and even later on to Canada. Um, but she did what she knew she could get a job at doing rel relatively quickly. She became a domestic. She was work. She was cleaning. She was a maid in private homes, in hotels. Um, and of course, there's this network of abolitionists, both black and white, in Philadelphia who are helping her make these connects. And of course, William Still is um, one of these most well-known abolitionists who helps to connect 
Harriet Tubman and other fugitives to opportunity. When she went back, to, to did she go alone or did, were people with her? Yeah, well, she, you know, the we know that she went back multiple times. Um, her first <clears throat> attempt at uh, rescuing someone actually didn't take her back to the eastern shore of Maryland. She went to Baltimore first. She was attempting to rescue her niece, who she heard was up for sale, whose free husband was going to eventually get her to Baltimore. And then Harriet would rescue her from there. Baltimore was one of these interesting places because there was a large free black community as well as enslaved community. And we were sort of thinking of the time, you know, that's, this is the place where Frederick Douglass, right, lived and um, learned to read and write. And so we also have to remember that they're contemporaries, that Douglass and um, Tubman are contemporaries. She makes her way to, um, to Baltimore and she is able to ferry her niece and children uh, to Philadelphia and to rescue them. And really it's, it's this moment where she realizes she was successful with this mission. And she knew that the next step would be to go down back to the eastern shore of Maryland, a kind of trickier geography, um, and that she would attempt to go and get her husband and to bring him. Now he could have left. He was free, right? Was he was free. Um, it, it wasn't that easy to sort of pick up and leave, um, even though he was free. But, uh, you know, she went in part to let him know that she had escaped and was successful and um, in order to help him learn the way. So as a free black man, what he, what John Tubman would have been worried about was being sold into slavery, even if you were. How did he have proof that he was free? Well, people had free papers. And so he would have had free papers that said, I, John, I'm John Tubman and free, uh, a free issue. Um, but oftentimes those papers were dismissed or um, if they were lost, that's even worse. And sometimes they were just ignored. And we know that from um, the narratives of Solomon Northrup, who's 12 years a slave, sold into slavery. He was a free man and that was, you know, discounted. So he would have been very um, cautious about moving about, even though he was free. He knew that there were limitations to that. She came down, she knew the way now. She knew how to get to Philadelphia. And when she arrives, she's, um, and this is one of the things I try to do as she came to slay, is that I want to show Harriet Tubman as a woman, as um, a wife, and also as someone who's heartbroken. Uh, when she arrives on the Eastern Shore, she goes into seclusion immediately, and she sends word to her husband that, I'm here, I'm here to take you with me to Philadelphia. Now this is 18 months or so after she's fled, right? So we also have to sort of think about John Tubman, like why would he ever think his enslaved fugitive wife would ever return for him, right? And when she arrives, he sends word, he, he has no interest in meeting her. Not only is he not going to go north with her, but he doesn't want to see her. And she finds out that she's been replaced, that he's married another woman, 
and that um, she was a free woman and that any children they had together would of course be free not the same situation with Harriet and this you know this is a moment where we have, we, we, we want to get at the intimacy of Harriet's life we know that she was a warrior and um, did things that were almost unbelievable but she was also a human being and the tremendous pain she felt attempting to return to her husband and finding that he's basically moved on without her is significant and also the anger she felt you know that she's she was upset but then that kinda quickly turned to anger like okay I just came a hundred miles for you and what did, did he know where she went was there any communication back and forth? There, yeah, there, he did know, and, and part of this plays to um, the whole conversation around black seafaring men. So there were black men who were, uh, black jacks who were uh, working the wharves of Baltimore and the Eastern Shore who were free. And so we do believe that word eventually got back to her husband. We don't know when. And it may or may not have mattered um, to him, you know, uh, he his wife left him um, but of course we understand why she was going to possibly be sold but then you know after this sort of moment of despair for her realizing she'd been rejected um, she got angry and she wrote you know she talked about it it was written about later on and she said you know she wanted to go into their cabin and like kind of you know See what happened. You know, she was interested in kind of mixing it up a little bit with the two of them. But what she realized quickly was that as a fugitive, there was no place for her to cause any kind of commotion or distraction. She, she could not go give anyone a piece of her mind. She needed to remain focused and steady and quiet. And it's in this moment she, she realizes, okay, John Tubman has let me go. I must let him go, and I'm not going to lose this opportunity to rescue other people, right? So she turns her attention from him to the rest of her family and friends. That's when she starts the pipeline of rescuing people? Yeah, she's, you know, it's sort of amazing. We, we know that um, she took at least 13 trips back and forth between... Um, Pennsylvania and Maryland and then later on up to Canada right so by foot uh, often by foot but she used the train as well because who's looking for a fugitive going back south right if you're taking the train to Baltimore or deeper into Maryland um, you're not really going to look for a fugitive on a train did, did she become known at some point? I mean were there posters up watch out for this woman there were fugitives there were fugitive slave ads for her um, as early as the moment that she really ran off. So and yet she kept going back and forth? She did. Um, and she had different names. You know, she was known as the Black Moses. And um, there was, there were, you know, historians are still sort of looking for the exact um, uh, bounty that was placed on her head. We know that there are multiple times that um, she was pursued by slave catchers, by um, her former owner's wife, the widow. Uh, but we know that she makes these 13 or so trips, most often by foot, by train, by wagon, when she could hitch rides um, for the, from those who were willing to help, who were abolitionists. Um, 
once the, the fugitives reached Philadelphia, it was a little easier to catch trains moving through New York, up to Rochester, and then over to Canada. So she learns this terrain, and she rescues between 60 and 70 people. Just, you know, and so that's another thing that most people <laughs> don't get right about um, Tubman. They say, oh, she went all across the South and rescued everything. No, kind of. She stayed in the sort of Maryland area, at least in the 1840s and 50s, and rescued, for the most part, her family and friends. And it was, you know, there's a moment in the book where I say, you know, she was doing, it was almost like trying to remove one grain of sand from the beach, um, sort of one by one in order to sweep a beach clear. And she knew that there was no way to really end slavery without a war. And she would say that later on, that her methods of um, entering into the beast of slavery and after she had spent time in Philadelphia and Cape May, New Jersey, she would go down to Cape May during the summers and she would work as a domestic and as a cook and she would save her money because she needed money for these expeditions. And then in the winter, she preferred to travel in the fall and the winter. She would um, head back down to Maryland and rescue people. Was she well known? I mean, when she went down to rescue somebody and she showed up and said, I'm Harriet Tubman, I'm here to rescue, would they, would they have said, oh, Harriet Tubman? Um, people knew, well, you're talking about enslaved people. Enslaved yeah, yeah. people definitely knew um, that she was someone who was coming to help in her community, mm -hmm. not across the entire state, no. That in her community, around her friends and family, people knew that she was slipping in and slipping out. And also, we have reason to believe that she was paying people. She was paying. That's why she worked so hard during the summers and the spring. She would save her money to pay people not just for rides or for shoes for fugitives or new clothing, but also to perhaps have people turn the other way. Um, to maybe they weren't a rabid abolitionist, but you know, twenty dollars might be enough to make someone turn their head while other people were running off of the farm. And so she was um, strategic. She never told us exactly, you know, who those people were, but she was strategic. You say in your introduction, we can only imagine the orientation Harriet gave the runaways, how she prepared them for what to expect. What would she have to had to say to them? And at one point, she pulls a gun on someone and threatens to shoot them if they're disruptive. Yeah, you know, it's the, the reminder. She came to slay, no matter who, you know, who was. I mean, she had to remind people. She knew that the work she was doing was the most dangerous work at this moment. She's a five-foot enslaved woman who is literally committing larceny, right? So the, the crime here is she is stealing other people's property, enslaved people. And that any kind of breach in the confidentiality of this trip north could end her whole mission and end her ability to eventually rescue her family, right? So it was very clear that if you came with Harriet Tubman, if she agreed to help rescue you, you had to comply. And there were times when 
um, there were people who got nervous, just like her brothers had, and who said, you know, there's one, um, one event where there was a man who refused to go anymore. It was, uh, he was thirsty, he was hungry, it was cold, they're, you know, in the swamps on the eastern shore, it's the winter, he's, you know, she has her, um, her spells, he's nervous that he's not going to eventually make it. And he, he makes the decision, I'm going to go back. I'm not traveling anymore, just as her brothers had. And she knew that if he was weak enough to not continue moving forward, that if she let him return, that he'd be weak enough to give her away. And he would tell whomever, whether he, it was beaten out of him or not, um, what road she took, who helped her along the way, what were her um, stations, where did she stop. She couldn't let that happen. If she let one man, she would call him a cowardly man is what she said, um, she couldn't let one cowardly man interrupt her whole uh, program, that there were still people, her family, her parents, that she needed to rescue. And so that was the moment where, yes, um, Harriet carried a gun. And on the cover of the book, I actually have her, um, an illustration of her holding a gun. And, I, and that's purposeful because we often have the kind of image of Harriet Tubman, you know, as the kind of older woman who almost looks like a pacifist, like she just ran in and out and saved 70 people without... Um, the probability of violence and being able to protect yourself. We, we only have a few minutes left and there's not enough time to <laughs> talk about all the stories, but I have to ask you this one. Harriet, you referred to it right in the beginning. Harriet became the first woman, black or white, to plan and lead an armed military expedition during the Civil War. I know. How'd that come about? It's, it's <laughs> one of those things that um, most people don't know. But in, um, in and around 1862, the war had already begun. She, the Civil War had begun. She was living um, in upstate New York at the time, in Auburn, New York, um, with many of her family members. But she was also kind of traveling the um, abolitionist circuit. She was giving talks and um, talking about the anti-slavery cause and, and the importance behind the war. And people knew who she was. They, they knew what she had done. And so the governor of Massachusetts literally reaches out to her and says, I think you would be, um, I paraphrase here, I think you would be um, an asset to um, our soldiers down south. Would you be willing to go down to South Carolina to serve as a spy and to do kind of reconnaissance work? And um, so, you know, we have to think about this as like, wow, okay, the governor, he, and he was smart, right? He knew this was a woman who knew how to, she didn't know South Carolina, but she knew how to um, maneuver around obstacles and um, that she had a power within herself that would help her negotiate. And so she agrees to go. And she agrees to go at a moment where technically she's still a fugitive. Even though the war is happening, even though most of the northern states had, had ended slavery. Um, well, plus you can shoot spies. Well, you can shoot, right. You can shoot spies. And also, you know, she's a woman. And that's the other thing we have to remember. She's a woman. And so she heads down to South Carolina. She does different kind of work. She's a nurse. She's, um, uh, she's helping uh, women 
formerly enslaved women kind of um, create business opportunities for themselves and eventually she's allowed to spy and she uh, in kind of one fell swoop she manages to free over 700 people during the Kambahi River Raid. These are men and women who were enslaved behind Confederate lines who she manages through her spy work um, to find a way to get to that Confederate stronghold, to break it, and to emancipate people. So when we do the numbers with Harriet Tubman, she's closer to having freed a thousand people when we include the, the Kambahi River Raid. Well, once she sprung 700 people, how does she move them to wherever they needed to be? Yeah, she was on several, there were several boats that she was commanding, and she had commanded those boats up the Kambahi River, and part of the, those, those rivers, that river had been booby-trapped. It was, uh, there were torpedoes, and her, through her spy work, through her connections with uh, enslaved people in the area. She knew exactly where those torpedoes had been planted because it wasn't the Confederates who did it. They had slaves, enslaved people plant those um, torpedoes. So it was through her spy work she was able to get these boats up the river for this surprise attack on the Confederacy. And so there are n a, a number of boats that are, uh, you know, opening up and allowing men and women and children to get on board. And she actually says one of the, the difficult things was that she couldn't fit everyone, you know, and she, she promised people to wait, we'll come back. Um, but yeah, there's this moment of almost sort of surprise that this has actually happened and it's going well and it's successful um, and that she's managed to free so many people. If you could talk to her, what would you ask her? Oh, wow. Um, I think I'd want to know more about her life after slavery. I'd want to know if um, she was disappointed with what was really the failure of this nation to fully integrate formerly enslaved people as free people, as equal citizens, and to ask her how she lived with that disappointment, if she had it, how she lived with that disappointment um, and lived for such a long time. Um, I imagine she would tell me that it had everything to do with her God and her faith. Um, but I'd ask her about her biggest disappointment. How long did she live after the Civil War? Yeah, so she doesn't, she dies in 1913. So she's, you know, she lives nearly half a century after, and that's a long period of time, right? Does she stay after, famous? Oh, you know, the thing about Harry Tubman is she was um, well-known, and she's used in, um, to draw attention to women's suffrage by both black and white women's organizations. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is that in the 1960s and 1970s, there's this new energy kind of placed on Tubman's name. She had always been sort of talked about in Sunday schools and especially within black communities. So she was known, but I would argue it really was the 1960s, 1970s with the bicentennial, with the, um, really with the beginning of Roots on television. 
um, on ABC that we see this kind of new interest in the lives of enslaved people and Harriet Tubman becomes one of those sort of main figures. But she was someone who was known, but I'd, I'd argue it's really not until later on in the, in the 20th century where we really hear more about her. And did she, she told her story and somebody wrote it down? She did. She told her story to a novelist, actually. Um, sometime in the 1860s, 1870s, there, it's reissued several different times. And, you know, Tubman never learned to read or write, and it's a reminder, a kind of a carryover of slavery, right? Um, and so you always kind of have to question narratives that are written by someone else about, um, about a character, about a person. Um, and, you know, Emily Bradford, who was chosen to write the, um, the narrative, she probably could have done a better job um, than she did. However, it was also the narrative was important because it was to be used as um, a way to gain money for Harriet Tubman, who, and that's another thing to remember, her life was very difficult after the war. She lived in poverty for the entirety of her life. She was collecting garbage and raising pigs and doing whatever she could to get by. And, you know, to sell her narrative, much in the way that um, Frederick Douglass had done, was an attempt to try and um, have some security for her, some financial security. And so, you know, it happened. But luckily, we have her words in other spaces and some of the talks that she gave. Uh, and I think that we know quite a bit about Tubman now. Sorry to say we are out of time. We've been mm. speaking with Erica Armstrong Dunbar, and she is the author of this book, She Came to Slay, The Life and Times of Harriet Tubman. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.